we talked about, hey, if we do this podcast and talk to early career researchers, it would be really easy if then afterwards we followed up with sort of a conversation with, with the public, as it were, because a lot of the change in activism comes from non-academics, and the podcast just grew out of that. This is Defender Radio. Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Anthrozoology is a fascinating field of study. Simply put, it examines the interactions between humans and other animals. That's a broad concept, which is why so many fields overlap with it. Anthropology, biology, philosophy, psychology, and many others. To me, the concept of these overlapping fields is daunting and intimidating. But thanks to many dedicated and passionate anthrozoologists, I found the journals and discussions more approachable than many other, more specific disciplines. Among the dedicated and passionate are three University of Exeter students who love the field of study so much and see such a potential for it in the future, they've started a podcast. The Anthrozoology Podcast is hosted by University of Exeter PhD students Sarah Oxley-Heaney and Chris Hill, along with PhD candidate Michelle Sidlowski. The trio of anthrozoologists arrived at Exeter's program with different specific interests and from very different places, both literally and figuratively, as we scheduled this group call across three different time zones. But it takes only the briefest moment of conversation to understand what drew them together. Shared passion, dedication, and excitement for doing more for humanity, non-human animals, and the planet. Their new podcast, the Anthrozoology Podcast, can be found on YouTube, Spotify, and other places podcasts can be heard. To get to know the new show and the people behind it, Michelle, Chris, and Sarah joined Defender Radio. This week's episode of Defender Radio is supported by AnimalStone.com. A Toronto-based ethical company, AnimalStone.com creates beautiful, hand-designed jewelry inspired by animals. If you're listening to this episode, you may be a fan of a lot of different animals. And AnimalStone.com has a lot of different types of animals across their beautiful lines. If you're looking for jewelry that showcases your love of animals while empowering frontline conservation, look no further. Head over to AnimalStone.com to see what they're all about. And if you order, use promo code DefenderRadio for 10% off your purchase. That's DefenderRadio at AnimalStone.com. Let's go around and introduce each of you and your area of study, just so we have that reference and we can get some voice cues from everyone. So we'll start with my top left. We're doing this via Zoom, uh, and I think everyone's Zoom probably presents differently. So for me, top left is Chris, if you want to go ahead. Hi, my name's Chris. Um, I'm a part-time PhD student, um, doing my PhD through Exeter University. Um, my project is um, looking at cat-human relationships, um, specifically free-roaming cats in urban urban environments, so either owned or unowned cats. And then we will go on to Sarah. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm also a part-time PhD student with Exeter University. Um, my areas of interest are um, abandoned animals um, and what society does about them, 
but my PhD um, uh, topic and area of research is about um, shark-human interactions, specifically about the um, shark-human interactions that are um, are developed, created and developed by people who um, who have relationships with individual sharks, and they pretty much know them as individuals with who have their own biographies, their own personalities. And I want to document uh, those relationships and then um, hopefully use that information to see if it can change the perception, the negative perceptions that sharks have. Um, I want to say globally, but it's too big for a PhD. So um, I, I have to discuss the rest with my uh, supervisor as to how far it will extend. Thank you. Absolutely. And I'm mostly interested in the number of sharks here in Lake Ontario and their disposition vis-a-vis mics. But we'll circle back to that. Uh, and Michelle, you are the PhD of the group. Well, I am the PhD candidate. Candidate. I'm right, sorry. Which means that all I have left in my PhD is my thesis, completion and acceptance. So mm -hmm. my focus, oh, I am a PhD candidate at the University of Exeter. I am a full-time student as well as a full-time teacher at Beacon College here in Florida. My focus is generally pachyderm conservation in Nepal. I focus on greater one-horned rhinos and elephants. And my PhD project has taken me to look at actually captive endangered species in Nepal. So I'm examining how captive elephants, owned elephants, uh, owned by the government and NGOs and private uh, how their health and welfare is looking. And then I'm also examining how the NGOs and INGOs who are active in the area and concerned with welfare are interacting uh, and, and possibly not quite working together in appropriate ways to the, uh, to, they're actually causing more problems with, with the elephants and the elephant welfare in the area. So it's been a fascinating topic and I am excited to continue with it. Absolutely. It sounds like there's some great complexity in there and possibly some questions that uh, many of us are uh, mildly uncomfortable with that uh, definitely need to be asked. Uh, and uh, to move forward, why anthrozoology? So this this is a very broad area of study now. It's emerging. Um, I remember when I, I think it was probably Mark Beckoff who introduced me to the term personally. Uh, through one of his writings or one of his uh, conversations that I've, or one of the conversations I've had with him. Um, but now there are, there are Facebook groups, there are study groups, there are anthrozoology programs taking place uh, around the world. So what, what is it about this field of study that's drawing the three of you um, as individuals, as researchers, as animal lovers? For me, it's, it's a fairly easy answer in that I, came from a teaching background as well as a veterinary medicine background. And for me, anthrozoology was the only truly interdisciplinary academic area that would combine uh, veterinary medicine and conservation and animal welfare, uh, looking at them historically, looking at our interactions currently, and then looking at how these interactions can benefit both communities and the endangered species that I've always been so interested in. Yeah. Uh, Chris, how about you? I came um, full circle. So I was really into animals sort of in, into my 20s. And then I 
I left all that and I went to back to education. So I, I left school at 16 with no qualifications. So I went went back to education and I got drawn sort of into the biosciences. So I felt I left the animal side more and more. Um, and yeah, I actually stumbled upon amphrozoology. I was sort of, I was searching for something. I didn't know what I was searching for. And I, I came across um, this course in amphrozoology and I kept coming back and I'm like, oh, if I could start again, that's, that's what I... I would love to to study, and I think what what really attracted me was um, how the the philosophy the philosophy of the discipline it, it views animals not as test subjects, not as something that's there for us to be studied, um, but really tries to incorporate them as um, as uh, participants or informants. Um, and so, yeah, that's what drew, drew me in. And then I started thinking back to some of my um, yeah earlier ideas and. Um, yeah, it, it almost felt like coming home. So I've been on this long career journey that, um, yeah, I went full circle and here I am. <laughs> that's great. And you know what? That's how I think a lot of people end up more involved in animal work in general is we start on one path and through a variety of experiences and thought and uh, education, all this other stuff kind of winds us back into something uh, that's very touching to many of us. Uh, and Sarah, how about you? How, how'd you land on anthrozoology? I, I think, uh, like Chris, um, I was searching for something, um, and I felt like I, I felt very much that um, from being a child where we grew up with pets, and then you get to know um, other people who didn't grow as you grow older. You, you see that some families don't have pets. You see how animals are treated in different ways. Um, it. I ended up with a lot of questions. For, for example, I became vegetarian when I was 27, and that was quite some time ago. And I remember the resistance that I got about uh, being a softie for being a vegetarian. Why, 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 do you, why do you care about that? And then, as we know now, Peter, like Herzog has written the book, uh, What Some We Eat, Some We Love, What Some We Hate. Um, it's kind of like I had, no, I had no way of explaining how I felt or why I felt like that. There was kind of no... And I didn't have the skills at the time to ex to express um, now what I'm trying to um, get the skills to express. Um, and when I then became a vegan at um, uh, um, much later on, I hadn't realised all of the things that happened to the dairy animals. So, uh, so basically, I, throughout my life, I'd a lot, I've had a lot of questions about a different a different animals. Um, I went, I learned to dive when I was much younger. Um, we had had an absolutely fantastic time and then you would see people handling animals and then one time we went diving and we saw um animals that had been well stunned some were dead after a dynamite uh explosion an underwater dynamite explosion that's how people were fishing in this particular area and then and everything was compartmentalized everything segmented and i looked at animal law um courses i looked at various things and couldn't find anything I really wanted to do. I did a master's in environmental um, pol environment policy and society before this, but still it didn't give me kind of a springboard to be able to talk about animals. Um, well, and when I found the anthropology, it was, that's it. That's exactly what I want to do. I, what, it gives me a legitimate voice and a legitimate way to be able to speak for animals. And th that is my focus. I know that some people like to use it for um, communities and for um, 
for uh, maybe the human side of, of the animal human animal relationship, but I actually want to try and use it uh, for speaking for the, from the from the animal point of view from the animal side. And so this is this has just been absolutely wonderful. It's a it's an interesting learning curve, and there's a lot of information out there that you have to kind of shove into your brain. Um, but it's so exciting, and it's uh, an absolutely fascinating field of study and as Michelle was saying so interdisciplinary that um it's it's just a passion it's a passion now and I'm all fired about it absolutely and speaking about shoving information into your brain is that where the three of you came up with an idea for a podcast like it's it's Podcasts are a great way to communicate with people but the three of you are in different parts of the world studying different subject matter um as we know just figuring out timing when you're dealing with multiple time zones gets very confusing very quickly um what led to the decision to the group of you coming together to want to put out a podcast where you talk about the subject matter in this way we actually were just meeting online to chat about animal topics because it was so nice to have people to talk to that that sort of we're willing to look at things intellectually. And during those chats, we just decided it would be sort of fun to uh, record and see what would happen. And, and we were playing with the idea of not only talking with and interviewing early career researchers, but also making things maybe more uh, approachable for, for the general public. So we talked about, hey, if we do this podcast and talk to early career researchers, it would be really easy if then afterwards we followed up with sort of a conversation with with the public, as it were, because a lot of the change in activism comes from non-academics, and the podcast just grew out of that. Yeah, and that's, and that's very true as well. Um, it is an intimidating field to get into, Um Certainly one of the ones that gets me is when we start uh, going through a study and I read, I try and read as many studies as I can specifically about coexistence and conflict and stuff. There's a lot of what the work of the fur bears is and I'll understand it. I'm on board and I'm on board and then N equals something and my brain just kind of starts to slide a little bit uh, and then there's some charts with numbers and points and lines on it. And then they start talking about words, which I'm comfortable with as a writer. Um, so that is very definitely a, a a sticking point in how do you get this out to the public? Um, and there's also a lot of ongoing conversation about uh, the journals in which everyone must publish. Um, and I, I don't have experience with that, though I do have experience with being 18 and selling my first newspaper article. And I imagine it's kind of similar. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk to you as we've got this diverse group, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. And I'm curious about how we can take these different groups of knowledge and bring them together. So, for example, on this call, we've got someone studying sharks and their interactions with people. We've got someone studying elephants, uh, both captive and free roaming in a certain part of the world. And we've got someone studying cats, both feral, outdoor and um uh, I imagine indoor come into it or abandoned come into it to a degree. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of discourse about um, whether or not cats should should be allowed to roam or 
yeah, if we have the right, exactly. Fine. So that that's a big part of my project is looking at some of the discourses and some of the different um, ideas people have. Um, and I'm also trying to look from the cat's perspective too. Um, I don't think you can say any one cat is um, better off kept indoors by their safe or um, they're they're all, all individuals. Yeah, yeah, and it, it becomes very interesting when we open that conversation to needs. Um, which again is something that I think is specific to anthrozoology that we wouldn't necessarily hear about in a biology conversation. Um, but when you're all looking at these different projects and, you know, the ones that popped into my head that I sent you in reference are things, um, like conflict prevention with livestock and predators. I read an article about, uh, painting eyes on the back of cow butts somewhere in Africa. I apologize for not remembering where. Uh, with the whole point of seeing will lions attack them. And they said, you know what? The ones with the eyes, the lions were less likely to select. Uh, it's not foolproof, but it's notable. And then reading, um, uh, we're reading about the orcas near the Strait of Gibraltar. Um, I'm having trouble with my words today. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, the Strait of Gibral Gibraltar. It's just Gibraltar. That's the problem. It's not me. It's Gibraltar. Uh, the Strait of Gibraltar. Out in the ocean, the orcas were attacking a couple of sea vessels that were passing over the specific area. And there was talk. Now there's some theories in the world, but, you know, there was talk. Are they communicating? What are they trying to tell us? And then uh, we, we talk about uh, a study that I just saw where they're showing now with cameras as opposed to traps, which is nice, um, that wildlife are avoiding high speed activities on trails. So while people walk down a trail, they may avoid it. But if there's a motorcycle, an ATV or a bicycle, they're going to avoid it even more. The reason I bring all of this up is because those are all considered under the umbrella of anthrozoology. And again, as I was saying, talking about cats uh, and needs, we probably wouldn't be having that conversation in a strictly biological conversation. But when we bring in these other areas of uh, study, we start to. So... Is there an ability then to also take these wide ranges of knowledge, talking about elephants, cats, and sharks, and find commonalities or find ways of looking at things that become unique or better? I think, Michael, for me, the biggest issue is what, what I teach to my students as far as systems thinking goes. When we're looking at issues with orcas, when we're looking at issues with an animal avoiding a trail, our human response is sort of to look at that specific individual uh, or, or a conservation species. So say I want to save tigers, I decide, oh, I need to set aside a habitat for tigers, and I set aside a habitat, and then I wonder why the tigers are dying. Well, that's because mm -hmm. I didn't look at this, this bigger picture, the systems thinking approach. I didn't look at what prey base is there. I didn't look at uh, anything beyond the, the sheer by look at that, that larger picture. I didn't look at the human communities that are impacted. And I think that that's why anthrozoology can take on these, these bigger unrelated issues and, and link them together and have a common conversation about them because we do look at this through a systems thinking approach. So we, we want to make sure we're, we're checking all of the items that, that affect this species as opposed to just looking at just the animal. And I think one of the other things as well is um, the way that you presented those um, examples, um, and forgive me if I'm wrong, you seem to have very much a certain worldview of how the world should be, that, um, you know, that, that the orcas should not be attacking boats. Now, 
the word attack, words are used in certain circumstances and they, they engender a perspective which might actually be very untrue. So those are the kind of things we try and do as well, especially as a group, try and break down what that the the way that people are using certain words, people have a specific worldview, and actually try and dismantle it and say, hold on a minute, are you the farmer? Are you the, the cow? Are you the are you the lion? Are you the conservationist who actually mm -hmm. is trying to protect lions and so you don't want them to attack the cows who so are trying to do something else? Are you the sailor? Are you the are you in the navy and part of maybe doing sonic experiments in the water? Are you somebody who's an orca researcher? Who says who who is making these policies? Who is making any policy? And why are those policies being made? And so it doesn't really matter so much what relationship is being looked at. It's all those underlying questions. And as researchers, those are the things we start to look at before we can start to build up any answers. And there might be multiple answers that somebody's looking at it this way, somebody's looking at it this way, and this is why this this is why this conflict is coming out of this because people have got different worldviews. And Michael, we like to talk about power relationships as well a lot in anthropology and, and philosophy. And going off what you said about are the orcas attacking the boats paints a very different picture than are the orcas communicating with the boats. And this is something that we've unpacked in our podcasts, and we actually have a few papers in the works. We're discussing what, what um, we have termed power words, words that we can apply in these situations to change, change the narrative. So if we refer to a cat as a community cat, suddenly this cat is, is owned by the community and the community is responsible for it. If we call that cat a stray cat or a feral cat, then the community feels less connected and less responsible. So using words like attack versus communicate very much changes mm -hmm. the story. And one of the, I was going to say that one of the things that I'd also bring in, in in terms of interdisciplinary work is that um, we that any any videos or document or verbal uh, documentary evidence uh, of of these attacks of these auger attacks. Um, I would look at um, the, the work that's done in criminology where eyewitnesses are notoriously, uh, it's been proven notoriously that actually people people do not make good eyewitnesses. Their brains make up all sorts of information. And even though you could swear that you've seen person X or person Y or the colour top yellow or colour top orange or whatever, people are often wrong. So breaking all of that down would, and that's how, that's how you could bring in another discipline into looking at human-animal conflict, interactions, relationships, whatever you want. Absolutely. And I want to own that I said attack because I write about that with regularity when we talk about terrestrial mammals. So I apologize to the audience and the orcas uh, for implying they were attacking. Um, and that is a very, again, that's very true, though. And the presentation, before we started recording, uh, I was talking about a presentation I recently did. And part of that, and it's a presentation I've done for years, is looking at... Uh, how the media portrays people killing coyotes versus coyotes killing or coming into conflict with pets and people. And it is stark. It is uh, kill, cull, euthanize, put down when people kill coyotes. But then on the other side of it, it's brazen and unreported plague and these highly visual words like that. Um, 
that really throw a wrench into the communication. And I've got a couple of instances where I think we can see a progression of the media reporting about coyotes being a problem, coyotes being a problem, and then pretty violent acts about against coyotes in a community. So uh, there are certainly parallels across the world and also direct uh, examples of when we use these words, it does impact the way we see animals. Well, and we've been working on a paper right now about domestication and how domestication can be thrown around as one of these power words, uh, especially, mm-hmm. excuse me, with my elephants that, you know, there's, a, if you're reading the documentation from the elephant owners or from the uh, community bureaucrats, they are discussed as domesticated animals so that then they sort of um, sneak under that that umbrella of, well, they're livestock, we can treat them as livestock. Whereas the narrative is being reframed by those outside, you know, in the welfare community that, hey, these are actually captive endangered species. These are not domesticated creatures, biologically speaking, they're not domesticated creatures. So we're, we're playing yep. with the way that these words are, are. Yeah, I would love to see one on either food conditioned or habituated too. Because habituated is a word that gets thrown around, particularly within bureaucracy. And when you then start looking for actual data on it, there's there's not a lot. It's it's a very mixed bag of what habituated means. And then, of course, what that means in terms of policy, which is a secondary conversation. Uh, but that does segue into something I wanted to talk about. And you already touched on this. Uh, the, the systems view of um, looking at ecosystem issues. The example I gave is the moose and wolves. Um, And this is, again, common to our listeners on Defender Radio of, um, oh, well, there's too many uh, moose. We need to go hunt the moose. And it's, oh, there's not enough moose. Uh, We need to hunt all the wolves. It's like, okay, let's, let's pump the brakes here. If there aren't enough moose, why don't you not hunt the moose? It's like, no, the wolves are the problem. So what about the ticks? The ticks that are here because of climate change. No, the wolves are the problem. And I know there is a, a degree of uh, local politicking involved in this, but it is also a very commonly held view of biology now, I think. Um, so while talking about the importance of looking at it in a system, the secondary part of that is also how do we get the public to start understanding that these issues are deeply complex they're not it's very rarely going to be there is a wolf there is a moose and oh well um it's most often going to involve again i think another great one uh which will have been last week's episode or two weeks ago episode once this airs which is some weird time traveling math in my head um about um the uh the caribou in uh bc Uh, They're trying to make it about caribou and wolves while they're cutting down caribou habitat. Uh, Like it's, it's just, it's very, Uh, Chris, is that something that you're having any struggle with in terms of talking about cats? Because I know that's a pretty much everywhere can be a contentious issue. Yeah. And it's something that I, I, I struggle with personally too, because I I obviously care about cats and, um, and that biases me to any biological conflict conservationist literature that um, can provide even evidence that in certain environments that um, cats do throw the ecosystem out of balance. Um, But then it always comes back to, so the the idea of control is as humans, we 
we feel this need to control and we might recognize that we are responsible for throwing an ecosystem out of balance through our own need to control it. Um, but then we want to fix it, but we, are, we, we take the same heavy handed. Yeah, we need to fix this. Um, and again, you, you see it a lot. So I, I look, I don't actually directly um, look at feral cats in Australia and ice and island environments. Um, but that feeds into a lot of my discourse analysis. So I look at how people, um, yeah, read and interact with, with the literature and, and the news articles. And essentially, they don't really read mm-hmm. it. They, they pick up on sen- sensationalist headlines and they'll read something that's specifically about um, cats in Australia. And, and then they're immediately worried that, um, yeah, the UK government is going to kill their neighborhood cats. Um, so it's very, very emotive. It is totally emotive. And that's a great example uh, because we do see people like I will share information about outdoor cats and their impact on bird populations. There's contention about all of those studies that are done in North America. Even if we presume the flaw in the methodology that some people point to and then take a conservative number instead, it's still a lot of birds and lizards and insects being killed. But you're absolutely right. I'll be having this conversation in Hamilton, Ontario, where we've got tons of space. There are lots of cats. There's no one planning on going out and getting the cats. And the second I comment about it, someone says, yeah, and now they want to kill all the cats. And they bring up some regional government from the other side of the world. And I I, I don't know how to like, yeah, I guess that's a concern. But right now, I just want your cat to stop pooping in front of my door. Mm-hmm. Like we we can have this conversation without that one necessarily impacting it. So is there, is there a strategy? Is there any information on how do we take people down a notch? Cause you can't get rid of emotion, but can we bring them down to a point? Like, let's have a conversation about it. Yeah. And I feel you kind of answered your own question there. It's about trying to, in, to try and get to the conversation part, because I think, yeah, if you've got an opposing view, um, so somebody thinks, yeah, that all cats should be kept in- indoors and all feral cats should be cold. Um, if you sort of go in attacking them, saying, no, that's not right, um, you get this immediate block and then they shut down and they go start um, bombarding you with all these articles from sort of very specific environments that, that prove their point that, um, cats are killing endangered species and, and and they're no longer conversing they're they're just basically reinforcing their own idea where really it's much more nuanced than that than that um that there's there's no sort of simple answer and anything going on the other extreme to totally deny that cats do threaten endemic wildlife in certain regions is also sort of um yeah going going to the other extreme so I really have to be careful with myself there that I'm not um yeah just shutting off to that 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 science entirely even though I mean I I find it very hard to um culling and and that's another power word too we say cull rather than murder if um when you read some of these articles it's about yeah cats are murdering endemic wildlife and, and we're, we're culling them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think it just goes back to trying to initiate a conversation, trying to find some sort of common ground um, and then sort of, yeah, circumventing the, the real issue so that, um, yeah, through that process of conversing that everybody sort of recognizes that there's no right and wrong. Um, 
and that it's much more nuanced. And, and then we can sort yep. of start working through solutions that may not be perfect, but they're workable. So I think anything that goes sort of black, white, I'm debating yes. this, I'm right, you're wrong. And I, um, and probably the hardest part is accepting that um, yeah, my, my views and my beliefs are not a hundred percent right. I may be wrong. I, and, and that, that, that's really, yeah, I think that's the, the hardest part. So if you can do it yourself, it, um, it kind of encourages the, the other side to maybe try and give a little bit too. Yeah, that's a great insight. And it's, it's a good thing we don't have any worldwide political leaders really reinforcing us versus them right now. Um, <laughs> cause that would be detrimental to the world, I think. Uh, that's no, that's great. And that's a really wonderful way of looking at it of, um, how do I adjust my thinking and my attitudes and then presenting that to the world as I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best and you can too. And I think, uh, that leads into one of the other points talking about, and, and again, I used similar language here, uh, that all of the different things we're talking about don't exist in a vacuum. And that has two meanings. One, very much what we just talked about in that we can't just look at these insular problems as one-offs, uh, as this interaction between these two individuals. We have to look at it from that systems point of view, from a holistic point of view. But then when we're also having conversations about this stuff, anthrozoology does give us that opportunity to bring in psychology and sociology and philosophy, as has been mentioned. And one of my most favorite papers of the last year that I read was Scientists Need to Be Allowed to Cry. And it was a, a compelling argument. It was uh, not research. It was a, an essay from a couple of young researchers. I interviewed one of them uh, last year living on the coast of northern Australia, studying the dying coral reef and trying to attract fish back to it uh, to help with the system. And the whole message to sum it up uh, and not do it any service is that scientists are on the forefront of watching what at times is a dying planet and to presume that we or that scientists should be able to do this without bias and be impartial and not have emotive responses is not only unnecessary but is actually dehumanizing in many ways and that by allowing conservation scientists to cry so to speak we're allowing them to heal and to be part of solutions um that's something how do we get across or do you agree with the idea that we need to get across that scientists can be upset and advocates can be upset on either side of whatever debate it is, and that's okay, while still relying on data to inform our decisions. Like, is that an impossibility or is that something we should be striving for? Uh, Sarah, what do you think? Well, I was just thinking that um, this very stoical um, stance that scientists are expected to take <clears throat> not in terms of the, of the way that they present themselves, but also in terms of the way that they uh, look at their animals that they, they may study or experiment on. They're often numbered. Um, they're not given names. Um, they're supposed to distance themselves, not be emotional, etc. cetera. Um, and, and you also mentioned how we seem to be looking at a dying planet. Well, that really hasn't worked, does it? If it has worked, why are we at this point now? So, yes, I do think things should change. I'm actually a very passionate person lots of, in lots of things, and it gets me in trouble sometimes. 
But I've tried to do it the way that the world wants people to behave, to be considered, well, not that I'm not considered, but behave yourself and don't speak out and, and to obey, obey the rules and to be polite. Well, fortunately, I'm old enough now to, um, to think that I, that I am going to speak out and I am going to say something. I am going to get upset. I actually had a bit of a bad day today. And, uh, and, it's, I, and I think that people, if they're not going to be able to be passionate about the things that they're studying, if they have to write papers that appear dry, if they don't make people think and don't make people emotional. But on the other side, we're watching other media all the time, for, for example, um, dramas on TV that are, that are shaped by people who want you to believe in a certain way. Then what, what are we doing the work for? Are we doing the work for, for it to eventually sit in a library with nobody left or no animals left and go, oh, that was a really good paper, that. But, yeah, they all died out, and, and that's a really bit of shame, isn't it? So let's, you know, go off to the wherever we're going to go off to. So, yes, I do think people should speak out and be emotional and be able to say, this is wrong, we have to change things. And I believe that as a team, those are the kind of things that we three um, want, want to do. Maybe some of us will be louder than others, but uh, I think we all are on the same page. <laughs> well, and jumping off of that, you know, our roots are in anthropology, and the old anthropologists felt that you could not get involved with your subjects. You couldn't get involved with your topic. You needed to be an outside observer. There was simply a presentation of facts. And... Uh, one of my personal heroes, Nancy Shepard Hughes, uh, wrote an article entitled um, The Primacy of the Ethical. Uh, oh, now I've just lost the title of it. Uh, Toward a Militant Anthropology, Primacy of the Ethical. And uh, her stance is that you cannot any longer stand by well in, when injustices are happening. You cannot be observing injustice without making a statement at least about that injustice. And I think that that is something that, that we have, as a group, have sort of embraced in that you cannot be a, an impartial scientist when you're studying creatures that have thoughts and feelings and, and pains and pleasures, um, not only our animal subjects, but the local communities that we work with. And I think it's very important that we acknowledge and uh, embrace that 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 being involved and, and being passionate, because if we're not passionate, why are we doing it? Can I just add something now as well? Um, Michelle reminded me. Uh, Van Doren, he writes some brilliant stuff about extinction stories, um, animals that are, are on the verge of at the edge of extinction or have actually gone extinct. And he, the way he writes is just wonderful and it really is uh, makes, you, makes you think. Um, and a lot of his stuff is online and is available to um, the, the general public. But I think the problem is getting people out there to read these things. And so we can't get people emotional about things if we can't say, look, look at this. I mean, I, I think that maybe the three of us can say, and maybe for some of your stuff, even your friends and family aren't really necessarily interested in what you're doing. We're very passionate about anthrozoology, but even friends and family might not be passionate about anthrozoology. It's other people dotted around the world who are passionate. So there's like this. So if you can't get your friends and family involved or excited, that is the big question. How do you get them excited? What makes people want to be excited? Some people just want to close off and not think about the possibility of extinction or the, the Anthropocene or the way that the future is going. Some people are out there trying to recycle lots, so many different things. But um, 
But I don't know how we make the world change unless our leaders change. And how do we get make our leaders change if they're telling us um, stories that people want to hear rather than the truth of the stories? For example, mm. the coral reef dying in Australia. Well, speaking of some of these horribly sad things, um, one of the follow-ups to that, and this is what I, I enjoy doing with this show, is the solutions. Is anthrozoology a solution to what we've just been talking about, the the frustrations of researchers like yourselves trying to tell these stories and show a truth through data and storytelling um, that is sometimes difficult to get across. It doesn't have the answers to how do I get uh, trappers to realize they're having negative impacts on uh, the ecosystem and not actually benefiting it like they've been told their whole lives. How do I convince people that it's okay to have your cat go out in the backyard, but maybe not all the way into the ravine? Does anthrozoology give us the opportunity to answer these questions or maybe ask them in a new way that will help us answer them? Yes. Short answer, yes. Of course, if we could solve everything, we would all be millionaires and would have solved all the problems of the world by now. But I think anthrozoology gives us a new approach in that it used to be that the so-called hard sciences, which I hate that term, did not talk to the social sciences. You know, there was this this gap. But now, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a paper yeah. right now with a biologist, a hyena biologist, and in entomologist, so an insect guy and a hyena guy and a, a social scientist who works with elephants are all working together on this common paper. And the paper is, is focused on uh, actually rabbits <laughs> of all things and, uh, and interactions in this in yeah. the community with, with uh, hispid hairs. And so I think that, yes, this is uh, one of the key, key ideas of anthrozoology is that we are the ones that are going to link together some of these uh, different, scientific groups in a way that we actually can all start communicating and realizing that a lot of biologists are actually doing anthrozoology. They just don't know it. Mm, that's uh, that's very after-school special sounding. I like it. Um, you may not know it, but you're already an anthrozoologist. Uh, <laughs> Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think yeah, um, being multidisciplinary, that in itself, it forces everybody to, to really think about, um, think in a different way and communicate. So disciplines tend to become um, very, very closed and terminology jargon. And, and it gets to the point where a group of biologists um, can understand each other, but they, they can't even communicate with psychologists or um, even other biologists. Mm -hmm. So this, it becomes a very sort of closed, closed room. Um, but being so multidisciplinary, we we have to sort of think. And so my um, PhD advisor comes from an anthropology background. My second advisor from a sociology background. So they're sort of reading my work and the, the questions are coming from sort of different perspectives. And Or a philosopher can sort of read my work and come up with totally new ways of, or new questions or ways of thinking. So that constantly forces you to, um, to really think about your ideas Um and how to communicate them. So how to present your ideas to, um, yeah, a broad range of disciplines um, and also out, outside of the field. And I think what I really love about anthrozoology is this attempt to really bring in the animal um, to try and give them a voice and not sort of view them as just something external that is to be studied, 
um, but as actually trying to to perceive them as participants um, and just even that way of thinking I mean the, there's no no easy answers I mean how do you get informed consent from from a cat you yeah it, it, it's something to think about and it is a new new way of thinking but it's just that the idea that um, they're not there just for us to study or save or or whatever but they're they're, they're part of um, part of our society part of our world yeah Sarah um I had quite a lot of thoughts going on there while you think well um, but one of the things that I was thinking about was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mm-hmm. when they built uh, when the community built the the robot to answer the question to the life the universe oh. this super robot um, with all the knowledge of the universe answered they answered mm-hmm. 42 the, the answer was 42 and it was it was the the question wasn't defined enough for the for the for the answer to be understandable so that's one of the things that um it's 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 not the problem is not always the answer um sometimes it's the questions but at the same time um even if i had the answer today even if i said i know how to fix everything who's going to listen to me it so it need we need I don't know how, but humans need to have this 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 common goal. And at the moment, we don't have a common goal except money, um, because we don't because we seem to think that we can just keep going on and and doing what we're doing and treating other species' lives that share this planet with us as we're treating them. So it and we see all seems so insular. We seem so focused inwards we don't seem to be focused outwards together and working together so even if we had the answer and i said right i've got the answer this is what we need to do what 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 does it matter what does it matter if we have an answer if nobody wants to act on it Mm -hmm. so that would be my my biggest question is exactly what you've been saying the whole time how do we get people to change and this is one of the things that i want to try and uh, look at in my for my phd Okay, I can get people to look at sharks and I can make great, maybe make great videos and have some great stories. But how do I get people then to value the lives of sharks to the extent of sharks so that I can make people recognize they have a life worth living? And yeah. I don't know the answer to that. So there you go. <laughs> I'll take wild speculation at this point. I mean, we need answers. I think I was pretty clear about that. Well, I think that part of part of the our or our anthropology our discipline grew out of you know women's studies and queer studies and kind of looking at the process of othering you know making someone the other and how we've done that to animals as well and i think that the the answer to the question is uh talk to people go go meet people go everywhere meet everyone you can every time you're exposed to a different opinion it will change you. And I think anytime you can communicate with uh, animal beings, uh, non-human animal beings or, or human animal beings, I, th- I think it's important just to take advantage of that opportunity to embrace those chances. Awesome. I think to go back to one of the things that you were saying though, if you want to uh, stab in the dark, if you, uh, well, it's not stab in the dark at all, but uh, if you, it, one of the big things that has been, that the UN has said in the, in livestock's long shadow is one of the ways that we can improve lives for ourselves and the animals on the planet, die of biodiversity, um, reduce uh, the loss, you know, reduce extinction rate loss, 
is to change what we eat. That is one of the things that people don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about what we eat and why we eat it and personal choice. People people get mad about it, just like your cat poo in your in your garden. They yep. they don't they want to talk about soybeans. They want to talk about um, tofu. They want to talk about a million other things, and uh, and so that is one thing I think that people could do to change life for the better for humans on this planet and for other animals on this planet is to read the UN's life life livestock's long shadow, and and to reduce meat consumption. Yep, big advocate for that myself, um, and I think also recognizing that we're talking about these massive world issues, global issues, extent, extinction level event issues. And to make the scale of change we need, it starts with everybody making very small changes. And that is scary and difficult, but that's where it starts. That's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make healthy choices. So I'm, and there's video on this call, which is unusual for Defender Radio, but I've been drinking my, my smoothie, which keeps getting stuck on my mustache and looks disgusting. But that little change in the morning, instead of a, a bagel to go with breakfast, right? It's, it's a healthier choice and it's a little change. It's a bigger change for the three of you who have had to look at my mustache this whole time. But for everyone else, it's very, very little. Uh, and I think that that is where we need to start looking, is what can I do today to make the world better tomorrow? Very simply. Um, and I've got two last questions we can get through. One is those who are interested in anthrozoology as a, as a hobby, as a subject matter to read about, which is what I love, or if they're interested in getting into it, if they come from another academic field or they are new to academia, they've never been involved. Uh, where's where are some good starting points for people? All right, so uh, Michelle, where are some good starting points for people? Since you're I the instructor, I wanted to make sure that everybody had a chance to talk. Well, I think that uh, the book that Sarah mentioned, <laughs> Hal Herzog's "Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat," is a really good sort of lighthearted. Uh, kind of look. I mean, not lighthearted, but you know, it's a easier to read look at our feelings about other animals. Yeah. And he covers a wide range of topics from, you know, animals and science to animals as food. I think that uh, reading books like that, that sort of gets your brain going are a really great start. A uh, little bit more advanced is uh, actually our, our supervisor, uh, Dr. Samantha Hearn has a book called humans and other animals, which is a great place to start. Uh, and then I would, I would think uh, reading some of the more, approachable journals like nature and science, you know, that, that have a little bit more of a, um, mm -hmm. uh, I guess an easier to understand bent to a lot of these, these topics. Uh, and then podcasts, there's a bunch of podcasts out there that are, are fun to listen to. I know that, uh, Hal Herzog has done a bunch of podcasts and, uh, it's the start. And then, you know, anthrozoology as an undergraduate program is now becoming very, very popular in the United States. Uh, at my college alone, it's the fastest growing major because people really want to discuss these wow. these issues. And it used to be only acceptable or only uh, accessible at a master's degree level. And so now we're actually bringing in this this younger crowd that's very interested in it. Awesome. I think one of the other things to do as well would just be to look around you. You know, just have a look at what, how, and how you interact with animals. You might not even think about it. You might, uh, you, you might 
taken lots of things for granted. Just start questioning those things and then start using Google and talk about, you know, why why do I hit a spider? Why do I don't want flies in the kitchen? What what have we been made to think? What what baggage have we have we been given? Start to uh, question those things. But one of the other places, obviously, is um, uh, that there's there's lots of different places and it is difficult to find accessibility, especially when you're uh, when you when you you. When you're trying to find something, it's not easy to find a list of resources. And I think it's something that we three were talking about is either on our own individual websites, some of which are under construction, or having one together, that we might start to make a list of places that people can go to to um, to, uh, to, to start reading about anthrozoology and um, and just human-animal relationships in the world, which is pretty much covers every element of everybody's life. What do you think, Chris? Any recommendations? Um, yeah, I don't really think I have a whole lot to, to add to, to what's been said. Um, I will just mention, so because it's such a young field, it is easier to 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 switch. So um, I highly recommend Exeter's um, Amphrozoology MA. Um, it's not cheap, um, but it is accessible to, it, it, it's a totally online distance learning program. Um so you can take it from, you, you don't have to move to go to university. You can get a proper MA, MA degree. It can be done full-time or part-time. Um, and I actually completed it while working full-time in an unrelated field, um, which really opened up doors to me that wouldn't have, yeah, so the, the, the only alternative would have been to to quit my job and, and go move somewhere and do a degree, which for, for many people is just not an option. So, and I think there's more and more programs like like this and um I know when I did the MA there were people from all sorts of backgrounds so sort of biology anthropology sociology so um yeah and that, that actually kind of enriches the field I think so you don't necessarily have to leave school thinking I want to study anthrozoology you can um sort of come into it like like all of us have at um at a later stage um and hopefully as it keeps growing in popularity there'll be more sort of evening classes or or options for, for people to to do it um, at the undergrad level, sort of through distance learning. Awesome. Um, but yeah, read, ask questions. And if, if you're really passionate about it, you'll find a way in. Absolutely. And I would also advise uh, social media groups. As much as I have a love-hate relationship with social media, the way we all connected was through an anthrozoology discussion group on Facebook. Um, so that's another great thing to look for. And some of them are good and some of them are maybe a little less positive spaces, uh, to say it positively, but, um, there are a lot of fascinating conversations taking place. Um, and also a great way to find new studies and stuff because people are excited and passionate, uh, as I think has been definitely audible during this conversation. So when you get passionate people all sharing content you end up getting a really cool selection of exposure to different things uh, i just saw one recently that i'm excited to read about how um scientists thought uh female birds didn't have a song or didn't have a different song until female scientists started studying them uh, i've had that one bookmarked and i'm saving it for the weekend because i really i really want to dig into it um but that's another one i found in an anthrozoology discussion group um um, and of course your podcast, how do people find it? How do people listen to it? Let's talk about that a little bit more to wrap up. Everyone jump in at once. <laughs> 
Well, so we do have a Facebook page called the Anthrozoology Podcast uh, that people can find our links on. We do have uh, the Anthrozoology Podcast on Spotify and uh, YouTube. We've tried to put it everywhere that we can uh, so that it is accessible to people. And then it will lead us into further conversations. Uh, we're talking about having a conversation with people called uh, Anthrozoology Speaks so that we can sit and just have conversations maybe online or, or via podcast. Uh, we are working right now on a Halloween podcast, uh, sort of addressing the misconceptions people have about animals like black cats, uh, bats with this whole COVID dilemma, uh, ravens, owls. So that's our next up will be a conversation about that. Oh, <laughs> sorry, there's a creepy hand going right. across the screen. <laughs> <laughs> also like spiders. All right. <laughs> Yeah, normally I don't do the podcast with video for a good reason. Um, <laughs> people do creepy hand spiders across the screen while someone's doing a punching, but it's all good. Also, we if people come onto our Facebook page, we would be happy for them to say any suggestions or topics that they find interesting or things maybe that they want to talk about anthrozoologically that maybe people haven't addressed or they're uncomfortable addressing with, with people who aren't in the field. So they could leave topics there and we could have a chat. Um, one thing we want to do as well, I think um, Michelle alluded to it before, is we uh, the, the plan is to do a, a podcast with um, basically us three and some hotlets, as we as we call them, some invited guests, and then to do a paper on the same subject. And then actually, after that, to have a podcast where we invite people to come and discuss what they've, um, the first podcast and the paper that goes with that, and maybe they've got some views on it as well. And that's how we want to try and engage with the public and um, see what they want to say about it. We'll see how passionate they are and whether we have to bleep bits out or something, I don't know. To check out the Anthrozoology podcast, look them up on Spotify, YouTube, or your preferred podcatcher. Links to their channels are available in this week's show notes and at thefurbears.com. I really want to thank Sarah, Michelle, and Chris for joining me and for somehow organizing four people in different locations across multiple time zones in a way that I could record. I really do hope you'll check out their podcast. The early episodes are already fascinating listens, and it seems there's a lot more to come. That's all for this week, folks. Please do take a minute to head over to animalstone.com and check out their beautiful jewelry, look up the Anthrozoology podcast, and in these uncertain times, stay safe. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>